The following presentation is brought to you by OWWR, Old Westbury Web Radio, broadcast from the SUNY College at Old Westbury. For more information, please call us at 516-876-7502. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Anker, the director of the first year program and a distinguished professor in the Department of American Studies. And I am extremely honored and proud to welcome all of you here, all of our students, faculty, administrators, and staff to the 10th annual Common Reading Program. So this is our 10th anniversary. A decade. Our program today is a conversation with Nate Powell, the artist and co-author of John Lewis's award-winning graphic memoir, March, book one and two, who is going to be interviewed and in conversation with Calvin Reed, the senior news editor at Publishers Weekly. As we celebrate the 50th anniversary of Old Westbury this year, today's event has particular significance. The social protest and political turbulence of the 1960s, most importantly, the civil rights movement portrayed in March, gave birth to SUNY Old Westbury. This is our common history. The college's historic social justice mission articulates our commitment to educational empowerment and social change, to building, in the word of our mission statement, a more just, equal, and sustainable world. Old Westbury's mission also dedicates the college to interdisciplinary education, the power of which March illustrates and understanding that knowledge requires the study of history, philosophy, sociology, science, psychology, politics, the media, literature, and the arts, not as isolated domains, but as they interact and intertwine to illuminate our world and help us understand how to change it. I want to just begin by acknowledging and thanking all the people who have made this program possible. I want to first acknowledge Christine Kmetz, who had to go to class, but who did this amazing poster for us. She is a student in the art department, and maybe we can all give her a round of applause. I want to thank the Campus Bookstore, Chartwells, which provides us food, the custodial staff. These are all the people who we sometimes forget, but without whom none of these programs would be possible. The first... And then the first-year faculty who come from that diversity of departments and disciplines. Will all of my first-year faculty or our first-year faculty stand? So we can say hi. I think a lot of them are standing already, but thank you. I also want to acknowledge the amazing first-year experience office staff, Bonnie Enon, who also is your teacher, Cynthia Anderson, who also teaches in our program, Maxine Wigway, Jim Shevlin, and Lisa Gazzardi, without whom nothing would happen.
And it is now my great honor to introduce Patty Harris, who will in turn introduce Calvin Reed, and then I'll come back and introduce Nate Powell. Patty Harris is an assistant professor and chair of our visual arts department at SUNY Old Westbury. Her specialty areas are electronic media and graphic design. Dr. Harris with Dr. Jermaine Archer from American Studies led a wonderful faculty development workshop on the graphic imagery in March, which helped all of us to then discuss it in our classes. Her collaboration has made this program possible. Patty. Hello, everyone. Um, I'd like to now tell you a little bit about Calvin Reed. Calvin Reed is Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, the trade news journal of the book publishing industry, and co-editor of PW Comics World, Publishers Weekly's online coverage of graphic novel and comics publishing. He is also a co-host on More to Come, the weekly PW Comics World podcast. Originally from Washington, DC, Calvin graduated with a BA from Howard University and an MFA from Virginia Commonwealth University before moving to New York City. He was an exhibiting artist for several years. He was also a reviewer of contemporary art for Art in America and other publications and was a contributing editor at Bomb Magazine. Calvin is also the recipient of two humanitarian awards. In 2006, he received the Bob Clampett Humanitarian Award the recipient of this award is chosen by the Comic-Con Committee. It was created to honor those people in comics and the popular arts who have worked to help others. Calvin received this award for reporting on comics and graphic novels in the book trade. In 2013, Calvin received a Push and Kick Award for excellence in the world of graphic books. Okay. Thanks, Patty. Oh, great. <laughs> and now, Nate Powell is a New York Times best-selling graphic novelist born in Little Rock, Arkansas. He began self-publishing at age 14 and graduated from North Little Rock High School in 1996, just 39 years after the Little Rock Nine integrated Central High School in Arkansas. So this is his history as well. He briefly attended George Washington University, but graduated from the School of Visual Arts in New York City in 2000, where he majored in cartooning. At SVA, he received the Outstanding Cartooning Student Award and the Shakespeare and Company Book Self-Publishing Grant. In addition to March Book One and March Book Two, which are now number five and six on the New York Times bestseller list for graphic novels, Mr. Not checked bad. last Not night. Not bad at all. I checked last <laughs> night. Mis um, Mr. Powell's work includes the critically acclaimed Any Empire, Swallow Me Whole, winner of the Eisner Award and Ignatz Award, The Year of the Beasts, The Silence of Our Friends, Sounds of Your Name, and the graphic novel adaptation of Rick Royden's international bestseller, Heroes of Olympus, The Lost Hero. Mr. Powell is now working on book three, March book three, whose publication we all anxiously await. 
Mr. Powell's commitment to issues of social justice precedes March. In 2011, he appeared at the United Nations to discuss his contribution to the fundraising fiction anthology, What You Wish For, A Book for Darfur, alongside some of the world's foremost writers of young adult fiction. From 1999 to 2009, Mr. Powell worked full-time supporting adults with developmental disabilities. He managed the DIY punk record label, Harlan Records for 16 years and has performed in the band's Universe, Divorce Chord, Sufi Nun, Sufi Nun Squad, SNS, right? Yes, SNS, Wait, and Boom Fancy. He lives in Bloomington, Indiana. And now, Let's get this party started. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it, it, you, we've given y- you an introduction here. I mean, I'd just like to say thanks to everybody for inviting me to do this. Um, uh, I can't imagine a better topic, a better medium to talk about. We, I mean, we brought together the central struggle, really, I think, of American political life, you know, race, social justice, equality, equal rights. Uh, and, and for me, just in an artistic sense, the comics medium, we brought them all together in this incredible work uh, of history and memoir, uh, and the result has just been uh, fantastic. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about the, uh, your, your background in the introduction, but I, I'd like to talk a little bit more, and then we're going to jump into March. Sure. Um, I mean, usually what I, when, I'm, when I'm interviewing artists, I, I, I want to know a little bit about their background, but, and also how their background intercepted with comics. But your background, in some ways, it's so attuned to this book, to be from Little Rock, uh, Arkansas, uh, certainly a, a key moment in the history of what we're talking about here in equal rights and the civil rights movement, but also, as we talked about at, at dinner today, um, just in terms of where you grew up, uh, you were an army brat, moved around. So many of the scenes that we that we uh, we've seen in March are. Uh, I said this isn't just history; it's personal for you. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about your your early background and and where that's if that pushed you toward comics. Oh yeah. Yeah, you bet. Hey everybody, how's it going? Um, uh, yes, to answer that question, okay, I was born in 1978, and uh, until I was 10 years old, I was in an Air Force family, moved around a lot, so I spent my toddler years, if you came in early and saw a picture frozen up here of me playing in the snow, uh, lived on a nuclear missile base in Montana, and while I was living on that base, that's kind of where I discovered comics, mostly through Wonder Woman and the Hulk being on TV. started drawing at the same time. Then, for most of elementary school, I lived in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, and it turns out uh, that yeah, my house is about a quarter mile from the very end of the old Troy Highway, which led directly to John Lewis's house. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, you know, when I was 10, my dad retired from the Air, from the Air Force. I moved back to Little Rock, and uh, in, a, in a very you know, general and cursory way, I feel like my social, con- my sense of social conscience was awakened by Chris Claremont's X-Men and by thrash metal. It was okay. basically, it was anthrax, 
and Wolverine that did it. Uh, but specifically, like, X-Men was a fantastic vehicle uh, by which, you know, issues of racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, all this stuff could be exposed. And, uh, like, Anthrax and Megadeth were the first uh, two sources I had for any kind of critique of nationalism or the absurdity of nuclear extinction, which was still very much alive in the 1980s. Uh, and uh, let's see, so when working on March, uh, my, my family's all from northern Mississippi, like from my parents' generation all the way back to like 1847 or so. Um, and so from Arkansas moving across through Mississippi to Alabama, there are a lot of sections in March 1, 2, and 3 that are towns that I know or spent time in, um, or even if it's just environmental aspects, these are my opportunities to kind of inject my own my own sense memory, my own environmental memory to kind of make, to allow my own imagination to walk around in these areas. Um, in March book two, as the, as the Freedom Riders approach Montgomery, Alabama, where there's an awful, horrific massacre at the Greyhound bus station, I mean, I know that bus station from downtown Montgomery, but there's a splash page where the bus is, is sort of coming over a rise with cop cars escorting it. You see, out, you see Montgomery a few miles in the distance. When I was a kid, I know that hill. That's the first foothill of the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, it was described in the script, and that was sort of like a, an aha moment to steal it from Oprah. That was like an aha That's moment true. where I was like, oh. I was like, this hill was here 51 years ago or whatever. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's in a, just in a strictly creative, uh, decontextualized way from the rest of March. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to wander around in those other less ugly environmental aspects of the American South. But even, even Little Rock, I mean, I'd love to know a little bit more about growing up in sure, Little Rock, sure. Arkansas. Um, yeah, how, how did that? It's such a charged location in American history. Oh, definitely. Um, okay, so, yeah, when I went to, when I lived in Montgomery, I lived in a, or, yeah, I lived, you know, basically in the, in the suburbs, uh, but I mean, it's, it's a small city, it's, you can't really call it the suburbs, in just a middle-class neighborhood. Uh, I went to a secular private school, which I found out just a year ago when I was doing research, more research on Montgomery, uh, that I was like, oh, the school I went to was founded in 1955 in a direct response to the Brown versus Board of Education decision of 54, where uh -huh. separate but equal facilities were unconstitutional, thus desegregating school situations. So there's this huge number of private schools that were founded in the South in 1955 that implicitly were a part of maintaining segregation. So once like, again, every like, mom and dad, why? <laughs> I had to actually call my parents up and be like, "Did you know what you just did to me?" Amazing. But when I moved to Arkansas, I started mm. started going to public school um, and started uh, basically. You know, I was ten, so like my worldview was expanding already and everything. Mm. And uh, I grew up with a basic working knowledge of key moments and players in the civil rights movement. And a lot of that was my parents were baby boomers from Mississippi, and they grew up in and through. Uh, the final decades of the Jim Crow South. Um, how, may I ask, how, al yeah. how alive is this history in Little Rock? Oh, uh, Little Rock, it just, has, I mean, Little Rock, 
doesn't have a like we don't have a real like there's a college in Little Rock, mm-hmm. but you know like there's not a lot happening in Little Rock in a mm. in a sense like it's not a place it's not a destination place mm. so a lot of people are lifers there uh, sometimes it can be boring and <laughs> but that means that because it's like this metropolitan area of a couple hundred thousand people uh, at times there aren't a lot of resources there it's this incredible hotbed of creative activity because mm. basically if you're a teenager you have to make your own fun or make your mm. own like creativity uh, it's small enough that you know like when people decide to get active in the community, they get results. Um, and uh, starting really, you know, and, okay, so I, I came of age kind of in the Clinton era, who was, you know, yeah. our Little Rock fellow sure. <laughs> or whatever. And uh, there was certainly an effort to kind of like reshape the landscape of Little Rock. Some of that uh, was very questionable at the time. There was a lot of gentrification of poorer mm-hmm. uh, African-American neighborhoods, knocking out the only grocery store in that neighborhood, replacing it with a sports stadium, uh, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there was also a lot of pushback about that. You know, programs like Cop Watch and Klan resistance organizations started. People started getting uh, their phones tapped by the police. Uh, Etc. This political activist in the city, social yeah. activist well, in the city. Yeah, well, I mean, this is my this mm-hmm. is sort of my context of growing up through yeah. punk mm-hmm. is the the politics ah. and the social movement that's associated with like with uh, you know the the anger and creativity sure. that punk provides. So getting involved in programs like Cop Watch and Food Not Bombs and becoming exposed to protest mm-hmm. as like a sixteen to eighteen year old. Uh, I think Little Rock. Uh, I wouldn't call it a hotbed of activity. It's definitely a hot bit of creativity, but it's a place that's kind of just the right size and just the right context where vastly diverse groups of people have actually been able to make things happen since, you know, since I've been old enough to recognize that. Well, I, I, I am curious to, very briefly to jump to George Washington. Um, okay. Because uh, I'm from Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, and I, your time there was brief, apparently. Right. <laughs> but then let's jump to SBA. Um, I'd love to talk more. I mean, I guess people in this area all know about SBA, but its cartooning school, obviously, is a really important, uh, it's just a really important platform for comics, for training comics artists, right. great faculty. Uh, maybe you can... Toggle between George Washington and SBA. Oh, sure. Uh, all right. So, yeah, I went to a year of school. Basically, I wasn't thinking about college throughout high school. I was a great student, but I, I was doing other things. I was sure. drawing comics, being in bands. Uh, first things first. Yeah, first things first, y'all. <laughs> so, I realized that I had to basically, like, I knew my path. I already knew it. I, it was one of those rare moments where, like, even as an adult, I'll be like, I listen to my parents too much. They're like, you'll never make it as a cartoonist. And I realized, like, I'm going to be unhappy the rest of my life unless I try to make this work out. So I transferred after a year to SBA, the first art school in America to have a cartooning major or to focus in comics. Uh, so it was interesting because I was... Like, when I was in ninth grade, I started publishing my own comics and zines. And I, so I was already doing my own thing. I had my own stories, and my band would go on tour every summer. So I'd publish comics for that and sell them, you know, at the, at the table or out of my backpack. But So I learned a lot of technical aspects of storytelling and, like, using tools. You know, like, I did not know how to use a nib pen. I didn't know how to use a brush. The two things I use every day of my life. Stuff like that. But, uh... I, I sort of took advantage of being in class uh, and tried to make 
every single assignment somehow fit into a story I was already trying to draw. So I, I had things cooked up already, and like there were certain requirements of an assignment, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna make this fit into this four-page story right here. Uh, and then I could publish it when I was done, but I also got a grade for it. Um, so a lot of it, like, uh, it helped hone my discipline, and I learned a lot of technical stuff, uh, but really, in some ways, I was a little bit checked out socially because I had my own thing going on with my friends in Arkansas, and I had my own publishing thing going on. So uh, I have a lot of friends in the comics industry now who are my classmates. They're like, oh, sorry we didn't hang out for those three years we were in <laughs> class together. All right. Well, you know, uh, let's move on quickly. I mean, you mentioned that you had already started publishing works, um, but I'm curious about, did, did you publish some significant things Around the time of SBA, um, and then we're gonna then we're gonna jump into um, into March. But I'm curious more about the first no, books you published oh, yeah. that were nothing, really got attention. Nothing too significant. Yeah. But like, uh, let's see. Let's let's take a trip. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, like in in art school during this era, I was exposed to graphic novels like Chester Brown's "I Never Liked mm -hmm. You" and "Flood" by Eric Drucker, and these narratives that sure. just blew my mind. This is a book I did called Conditions and a hybrid comic zine called Wonderful Broken Thing. So importantly, I think more important than these comics, and this is a series I did called Walkie Talkie, which sort of was the first comic ever distributed in comic book stores. But in the 90s, there were these scams you could do at Kinko's involving <laughs> the technological limits of the copy machine. So an entire generation of punks were able to make God knows how many millions of copies of comics for virtually no money. So thanks to these technological constraints, you know, I could make, I probably printed, I printed about 1,500 copies, photocopied, self-assembled of all of these books. Uh, I probably made 8,000 books for less than, less than $1,000 total. Yeah. Um, that's the, the kind of window, technologically speaking, you can't do that anymore. Yeah, it's a time gone by, but I, I wouldn't say these were more or less significant than anything else. Mostly I was working in a vacuum, like I didn't have an editor, uh, not even my friends were seeing what I was doing until it was printed up, so I sort of missed those days because it was a completely open era, uh, where it was just me in my room, completely ignoring who may or may not read anything, and really that's something I never... Uh, had to deal with until March. Until March book one came out, hmm. I was like, I should never consider the readership of the book or the audience, because that's going to water it down, or whatever. Uh, and, but then a lot of this goes back to growing up with a, a kind of a base level knowledge of the civil rights movement and everything, mm -hmm. because I had never had to realize, A, that there was a generational gap between me and millennials, or now that I'm a dad, between millennials and my children's generation, uh, and that information just disappears if you don't pass it down. And I shouldn't take for granted that everybody's parents or everyone's environment is gonna, gonna fill them in on certain things. I mean, one thing, I, 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 I'm gonna touch on this really briefly because I think this is an important aspect. I think of your generation, I'd be curious to know what you think about this. I mean, you are part of a generation, um, and, I'm, and I'm using this broadly, that kind of grew up, even though you were obviously influenced by superhero comics, as oh, yeah. we all were, oh, yeah. they, you know, these are the comics that made me the, the passionate comic book nut job that I am. Um, but you're also, 
another generation to grow up with not necessarily believing that you had to draw superhero comics to become. You were inspired by them, but your comics are very different. Very different. Um, in fact, this is kind of, we're in the midst of a sort of the flowering of American comic books right now. Right. The golden in age. The, the indie, uh, kind new of a golden new age. golden age. Yeah. Um, uh, for myself in the 80s, the, end of the, alter, the, uh, the, um, <clears throat> the alternative comics movement with publishers like Fantagraphics and Drawing Quarterly, but also the DIY um, punk movement and that, that whole philosophy, and even now jumping ahead to the self-publishing movement. Uh, to the self excuse me, I'm not talking to the mic. But you, you clearly had different ideas and other options, even if you didn't necessarily know how you were going to make a living, about what kind of comics you wanted to make. Very different from an earlier generation that either had to do superhero comics, syndicated news strips, or gag panels. So maybe talk about that a little bit. Sure. Okay, when I, I mean, I've wanted to draw comics since, like, basically my 12th birthday, 1990. And uh, I've, in a lot of ways, the way that I do comics and the way that I think about them are no different than they were at that point. So, you know, I started out, obviously, I loved X-Men, Daredevil, and stuff. So, like, for the most part, I drew dystopic guns and boobs superhero comics. Uh, and that's what I started publishing. Uh, you know, also, I grew up in Arkansas, so, you know, whatever was around, I was not aware of it. Um, but, you know, even as I got into X-Men and, like, you know, um, there were these backup stories that this British guy, John Bolton, would do in the reprints of these old X-Men stories uh, that would just focus on a single character. And these were the first things I ever saw that were these quieter moments of everyday life in a comic, in a superhero comic. And very quickly, I was like, I'm more interested in these than in the, uh, like the John Byrne uh, action story in the beginning. Um, and it was these, these quiet moments that, you know, like, but th this was the best I could do at this point. Mm -hmm. These are excellent comics, but this is also the, uh, this was the only option in Arkansas. And, you know, I'd slowly become aware of other things, but, like, it really wasn't until, like, when I was leaving high school, that's, that's the cover of my first comic, DOA, okay. that I published. <laughs> um, so when I got less interested in superheroes, but, like, I didn't know, like, how do you make a, how do you tell a comic story if you don't really, if you don't care about superheroes as much, like, what do you do? So a lot of the plots would still be basically like this, like building up of anger, and then there would be like a crisis, and people would come in with guns, and, and be like, no. And when be all else everywhere. fails, pull out a yeah. lot of guns. Um, and really, it wasn't until like '97 or so when I got exposed to this is Al Burian, who's a, a friend of mine, but also a cartoonist and a zine writer and a musician. But it was this self-published comic of his called. Uh, called long, The Long Walk Nowhere, and this, along with I Never Liked You by Chester Brown, were the things that changed the course of my life. Uh, like, the original run of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was the closest thing to a real alternative comic I'd ever seen. But these two comics uh, actually, like, shattered my mind by showing me that, like, the things that you see around you in your life are just as fair a game in a comic. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh... So wait, comics can be can be about everything. This is a revolutionary concept in American comics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and like then, like basically, just all bets were off. And so they're like, it, that's like 1997 is like the dividing line in my life as comics. So I was going to school, you know, to make a living as a cartoonist, but I didn't. 
I didn't really, my, my dream was to like be Arthur Adams' assistant. You know, like, I didn't <laughs> know how I would actually do that because like, I didn't want to stay in New York and just like work as a cartoonist at that time. So really, you know, from then on, when I graduated from college until about six years ago, I had basically given up on the possibility of making a living doing comics. I was like, I don't see how I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm not really interested in like drawing the kinds of comics that I could make a living doing. But the, the encouraging thing was that once I realized that, I was like, oh, and I still can't wait to do comics. So then kind of the pressure was off. I was like, I'll do my day job, and then I'll draw comics, you know, like on the night shift or early in the morning. And then when my break came around 2008, when uh, this book, Swallow Me Whole, yeah. has just won an award, and I, or had just come out, and then I got... When you say an award, you were, first of all, you were nominated by the L.A. Times Book Prize, uh, which uh, it really, the L.A. Times has really been amazing in recent years where of the books that's nominated, and you won an Eisner for it. And if you don't know what the, the Will Eisner Comic Industry Awards are, they are the, as I call them, they are the National Book Awards of the comics industry. The comics industry likes to call them the Oscars, but you know what, I, you know, it's a publishing award, okay? Uh, it, it, it is the uh, most distinguished award in comics publishing. So just to clarify on that a little bit, go on. <laughs> well, no, I was just going to say, like, I, I really, like, where it seemed like a possibility was Swallow Me Whole had just come out, and I got a call out of the blue one day from the writers of this book to see if I could draw this book. Um, and they're like, oh, yeah, and we can pay you in advance to draw it. And I actually turned them down. I was like, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't do it because, you know, like, it takes me a couple of years to draw a comic, and if I draw your comic, then, you know, like, I, you know, I work my full-time job, I'm not going to have time to draw my own, click. And then I was like, or I can quit my job and there you draw go. both of them at the same time. But then, like, it was so risky, I'm just basically like, I'll throw my life in the toilet and see, like, what happens. You know, like maybe for three months, I'll, you know, I can do this, then six, then a year. So I drew my own book for very little advance money. Um, and, and who did, who did uh, any of our top shelf to debt? Yeah. And, uh, and then I drew this book for hire at the same time. Uh, and basically, ever since then, like, you're always kind of walking on a tightrope, but it's about you keep doing work literally every day, you keep your books in print, you show up and remain a relevant human being in the world of comics. And then in like five years, in 10 years, eventually you'll, enough money will trickle in that you can make a living off of it. Um, but Silence of Our Friends also ties into March in that um, it's a period piece that's mostly true to life about this guy Mark Long and his life uh, as like a white middle class kid growing up in Houston, Texas in the mid late 60s. And set against a backdrop, the backdrop of a forgotten chapter of the civil rights movement. So since I've, I had just quit my job, I was like, okay, I'm about to draw 500 pages in the next year. How am I going to do this? I was like, well, every morning I'll draw two pages from any empire. Then every afternoon I'll draw a page from the silence of our friends. And because I was doing so many, I was like, I better mix it up so that I don't get super bored. And I was like, well, I'll draw any empire the normal way with my black and white line art, with lots of like hatching and patterns and stuff. And I was like, since this is a period piece, uh, I'll just kind of try to like throw some gray washes on it and stuff. And I was like, we see a lot of black and white news footage too. That's sort of how my generation and younger, we are accustomed to seeing the 1960s. I'll just go with that and it sounds cool. 
Uh, and then I just fell in love with the process of using this gray watercolor wash. Uh, and so, and the basic, the basic level of like research and reference that I had to do to draw this book made it so that when I got the job to draw March, I was able to basically hit the ground running with it. I had a template by which I had learned to draw March already. Yeah, I mean, once again, it just seems as though there were books thrown at you and life experiences thrown at you that led you right into doing March. And I just, and, and I also like to say, just in terms of giving you a little background on the book industry and the comics industry and in the indie publishing industry as far as making a living, I mean, you got an advance, I think, for the silence of our friends. In the book industry, of course, um, did you have an agent at the time or no, they just called you up? I mean, it was published by First Second, right. which is actually the graphic novel imprint of um, Macmillan. Macmillan. Um, and in the traditional book industry, I mean, that's how it works. I mean, very often you have an agent, but even if you don't, you're offered an advance against royalties. They, they basically give you a, a, you know, a, a sum of money, theoretically, that you can live on. Maybe you can or maybe you can't. Um, whereas in the independent comics company, you might get an advance. It'd be very tiny it's if a, you do. It's a token. It's, yeah, it's really a symbolic advance yeah. more than and then, of course, in the DIY world, you know, you're, you're, it's, you're on your own dime. So, uh, but as you, as you sell books in, in the book industry, you, you know, books can go back to print if they're popular. You get a royalty. So you can build a living over time. It over ain't time, easy yes, either yes. way. Um, uh, but I, at this point, I do want to at some point get into March. But I wanted to give some background as to how you got into publishing. At some point, we're going to jump back. I'm, I'm curious about your relationship with Top Shelf sure. because they were really publishing you very early. But let's jump to March. How did you get the gig? Sure thing. Okay, so <clears throat> the backstory, like in the smallest nutshell that I can provide, is that at the end of the 2008 election, Andrew Iden, who's the co-writer of March, he's been a staffer for Congressman Lewis since 06. He started in the mailroom, worked his way up, but he was the press secretary. And everybody in the office was like, oh yeah, after the election, I'm gonna go on vacation, I'm gonna go see my parents. And he was like, oh, I'm gonna go to a comic convention? And everybody's <laughs> yes. laughing at him. Yeah. <laughs> when apparently, John Lewis, from the corner of the room, was like, don't make fun of him. <laughs> and he's like, there was a comic book during the movement that was very influential. And he starts talking about Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery story, which came out in 57 and documents the Montgomery bus boycotts. They made a quarter of a million copies and uh, it was used basically as a tactical primer for resistance that a young John Lewis and everybody who was learning under Jim Lawson used. Uh, that one of the great, one or two of the members of the Greensboro Four remember using the weekend they decided to go sit in for the first time, wow. uh, but also mm -hmm. found its way into Cesar Chavez's labor movement through Central and South America. It was translated into Arabic and Farsi and used in Egypt. Yes, um, basically, this blew Andrew's mind, and he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Nobody and nobody's ever yeah. heard of this comic at this point. Like it just forgotten." Mm. And so he's like, first off." What is this comic? Second, why don't you make a comic? Ah. Like, why don't you make a comic about that comic and about you know about you and your relationship to it? And you know, for a few weeks, Congressman Lewis was like, oh, maybe no, no. But eventually, he was like, all right, only if you write it with me. So they spent a couple of years writing an early version of the entire trilogy. Uh, they got a publishing deal with Top Shelf with no artist, 
And I've been working with Top Shelf for a decade now. We have a great, very familial relationship. Uh, but I was wrapping up work on Silence of Our Friends and Any Empire when I saw the press release. And I was like, oh, interesting. It's trying with this book. Okay. But I didn't like, it didn't hit me that because they don't have an artist, they need an artist. But then, like a week or so later, my publisher, Chris Staros, like called me up. A great guy, by the way. <laughs> very good dude. And he was like, he was like, look, man, I very strongly suggest you try out for this job. Yeah. Um, and and really, that's where that's where it landed. It was up to Congressman Lewis and Andrew. So it was like working with any other creator in that they gave me a couple pages of script. I drew some demo pages. They gave me notes, and I redrew them. They gave me more notes, and I redrew the pages again. And then we basically we just hit it off within a couple of weeks. Um, now, had you met them? Had no. you met them? All? This was all done by correspondence. Yeah, it was yeah. all through email at that point. Mm -hmm. So I, I had even done like a demo chapter and stuff. And I met Andrew mm -hmm. by himself at Comic Con in 2012, and I met Congressman Lewis at his office uh, a month or so later, and got a little tour of the Capitol and stuff. Uh, got some Georgia peanuts out of his office okay, or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, like I had already been working on the book for nine months before I got a chance to meet them. Uh, well, I, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit here because, I mean, it, it, it's when I read some of your earlier work, particularly Swallow Me Whole and Any Empire, there there is a quality in your storytelling and in your in your your comics syntax. Um, in some ways, and I'm curious, it, there, there's a manga-like quality in the pacing. I mean, one thing you don't see in American comics is slow, methodical storytelling. And your comics are always characterized, or your storytelling that will be characterized, is very careful, methodical recreations of the emotional life, really the most ordinary moments. And you're able to give them incredible life, incredible emotional power, um, even when the narration is not perfectly linear. I mean, Swallow Me Whole is a very unusual, it's a wild book, yeah. you know, meandering but ultimately powerful emotional experience. As we follow these characters who are so seem very troubled, Any Empire is a little clearer in its story, but just as slow and carefully constructed moment by moment. You know, you don't break away, there's nobody crashing through a wall, you know, there are no aliens. Uh, it's people, and it's people reacting to people in the most basic ways. This is certainly the kind of storytelling that, that March requires, and, and can we assume that this is also what attracted you know, John Lewis and, and, and Andrew Iden to, to use you? Uh, I mean, to be frank, Chris Staros, my publisher, essentially said that, in his opinion, I was the only artist who could draw, who could pull off the story correctly for those reasons, mm -hmm. for writing a line between because I love 1980s uh, superhero comic artists, I could pull off a level of detail and realism and dynamism, uh, but also have these sort of like intangible, ethereal, uh, internal qualities. Uh, that would make the story not be like a dry historical account. Um, so not to like take credit for that, but yeah, Staros mm -hmm. definitely said that. Um, the My entry into Japanese comics, I think, started with Japanese cartoons. And in 92, as I was 
finishing up that first issue of our first superhero comic, I was finally exposed to Masamune Shiro's Appleseed and Black Magic and Akira and uh, Gunbuster and all these Japanese. Uh, I love Masamune. I'm like a crazy. Uh, yeah. Go on. Yes, indeed. Goes in the shell. Uh, yeah, just. So, I mean, but a lot of those, like, through the cartoons, then I found, I dug up all the comics I could in my comic shop. But a lot of those, like, transitions and, and the things that a camera would just focus on were like nothing I had ever seen in a comic yeah. book before or a cartoon. And even like, there's this this late '80s cartoon Gunbuster by the same person who later did uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it was basically like it was almost like a genre parody of like space opera with giant robots fighting massive aliens. But there were these moments in the middle of like of like teenage like teenagers talking to each other and swinging on a swing while there's like a a post-apocalyptic like evening sky happening and like dust would come out from under their feet and as like a 14 year old I was like what is happening yeah yeah um so as soon as I figured out the kind of comics I wanted to draw it all came back to the influence that those particular Japanese comics had and their focus on quiet and loud and the way that mm -hmm. the pace of a story completely changes visually depending on where you are looking and why are there are there manga readers in the audience? They, they, you, oh, I saw you. I saw yeah, you back yeah, there. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, manga. We should also say, particularly starting around the late '90s, the early 2000s, was also tremendously important in transforming the American book market. And because of its popularity in the traditional bookstores, it really transformed American comic book storytelling as well as the publishing industry in general. It made book publishing industry b believe that comics could actually could sell like prose books. Well, importantly, it actually like leveled the gender playing. Like, Absolutely, all of a sudden, like, more than half of comics Absolutely. readers were female. It, yeah, there were comics designed for women. Uh, actually, American comic book market had almost written off female readers by the late two, by by the ni 1990s. Um, Talk a little bit about the collaborative process in creating sure. March. How do you guys work together? Because obviously he's a congressman. Andrew's got his 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 day job. Right. Uh, how do you get it done? Sometimes it's very complex. Okay. First off, uh, he's sitting congressman. So like everything we do, from like events to the fact that like it's a book that he's making royalties off of and everything, and, and he's helping write. Everything has to be cleared through the congressional ethics committee. Uh, this is something where I'm really glad, like, I live in Indiana, and I have nothing to do with that. It sounds like a nightmare. So beyond all that, um, our process is essentially that Andrew and Congressman Lewis come up with a script. Andrew is the primary script writer, the crafter, and he does a ton of the research. Uh, as, a, as a side note, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, um, so much of the content of the writing doesn't, like the original source is not actually a written word at all. And it took me a while to realize this, that so much of the text in here is coming from the oral tradition. A lot of stuff is being said verbatim the way that John Lewis has been saying it for 50 or 55 years. And that was something that I didn't, I wasn't aware of and really wasn't respecting because I was seeing it as a cartoonist. I'm like, this is redundant, this isn't necessary. I was like, this just sounds whack. 
And like, I was a little heavy handed at first, and then I realized there was a sanctity to his spoken word. And in a lot of cases, slightly awkward or not, like, I'm going to work around this. Because now I've, you know, I've spoken with him like a, a hundred times or whatever. And, you know, I'm like, okay, he has said this 7,000 times, and it's just as powerful every time. So you bet it's going to go in the book like this. So here's a page of the original script from book one. Um, and, uh, oh, this is the script of his first arrest around page 102 or 103 of March book one. And uh, so you'll see my handwritten notes. Basically, I take the script and I, I chop it up, uh, to use the phrase, willy-nilly, according to my own sense of like pace and what's actually going to make the comic work. Uh, book one, we were learning to work together, so uh, I'll go ahead and say that you know I, I took much more of the driver's seat in that regard, but the process allowed us to learn how to play off each other's strengths, so that book two is a true, like equal collaboration. Um, so you can see where I'm just knocking out captions. One of the primary rules of any storytelling, very important, take notes, is show, don't tell. Any opportunity, in comics I feel like more than anything else, if you have the opportunity to establish or explain something without writing it out, you better take advantage of that opportunity. So a lot of what I do is just show, don't tell moments where I'm knocking out captions and I'm like, I'm gonna draw that so I don't have to letter it in. Then I move from there. Once that's all edited, the entire book is edited. I do thumbnails of the whole book. Now each, of, they're called thumbnails because they're super tiny scribbles of each page. Mine are about like two inches high by an inch and a half wide. And I thumbnail the whole book from the script so that I can visually see the flow, I can see if there's enough room for lettering, and I can, you know, I, I can, I begin to establish in my mind's eye what the finished version of the book will be long before I even start drawing it. Once that's done, I move to the pencil stage. These, and my pencils are usually pretty loose. These are actually tighter than my pencils usually are, but these are very loose by most comic standards. And I do it pretty quickly, about 20 minutes a page, so that I know what's where, I pencil in all the lettering, I, I email it to everybody, and we start to make edits. And then I re-letter you know, I, I re and redraw things. Once that's pretty secure, I ink in the lettering with a pen, and then I, I do an ink layer of just the black line art, and then do uh, the gray washes over it. <clears throat> and in between those, I have to like run over it. I have to tape every page to a board, run over it with a hair dryer to make sure the ink's totally dry, then erase it, then wet the page, watercolor it, run it over with a hair dryer again, <laughs> untape it, scan it, clean it up on the computer. So well, that's what I was curious. Where did where computer technology oh. entered into the issue? I mean, as cartooning has evolved. Uh, well, very little for me. Oh, personally. interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, virtually every. No, it seems pretty pretty traditional. It's very physical, and uh, yeah. in some ways, this is where I'm like behind the times. But I was born sort of on a, on a cusp year, yeah. a tipping point year. So I, the only thing I do is like, if there's lettering that's white on black, I'll letter it on a separate piece of paper, I'll scan it in, and I'll make it negative and cut and paste it on the computer. Everything else is, you know, on the paper itself. So I graduated from high school in 96. For me, the last year before computers were used at all in my art department or the journalism department. Then I went to SBA 
and my class was the last class for cartoonists where you were not required to take any computer classes for anything. So I, I, I didn't know how to even, you know, like, I didn't know what Photoshop was till like 2006. And when I was like starting to ink swallow me whole, I went over to my best friend. I was like, will you please show me how <laughs> yes, to like time. paste things <laughs> on Photoshop? But my, my skill level is still very rudimentary. I got a one day crash course in Photoshop so I could take my black and white art and like paste it together. And then every other thing I try to learn is either a mistake that I do myself or it's just something I don't retain. So like, yeah, it's very traditional pre-Photoshop level of production here. All right, now get ready. I'm getting. I'm, I'm going to reach out for some questions now. I've got. I've, I've got. I've got more questions, but I've got one now. But then I want to get. I want to get. Let you have an opportunity to talk. To talk with Nate. This is one of the, the great things about this book. Um, I think is that it's brought this period in American history back to life. You couldn't ask, obviously, for a better, more visionary figure than John Lewis. Um, but one of the things that. I think it's important about this book is that it it recreates the bravery of the individuals involved, their dedication to social justice, even at the cost of their own lives. Uh, and as as we reread this history, as we re reexamine this period, uh, I've always felt to some extent that the sacrifices, the bravery of of, of the civil rights marches, um, has been somewhat forgotten. There was an extraordinary amount of violence. Um, uh, you put your life on the line for the things you believed in. Comic books have always been full of violence. Right. How, I, I, I just want to know how you, the three of you worked together to make sure that this book had the immediacy, had the power of these events and what people, the cost sure. of human life in them. but. Also weighing that against, you know, in some ways, the trivialization of violence, the the uh, in in comic books, but also the rise of hyperviolence in media. I mean, the depiction of violence in movies and is really off the scale. It's realer than real. So I'm curious, in a literary fashion, because when we're talking about comics, we're talking about a, a literary depiction. How you navigated that? Sure. Okay, this is a major, a major consideration while we're in the process of doing this book. Um, okay, so as a comic book nerd, you know, I grew up uh, just deeply immersed in like the visual shorthand of violence in comics, the superhero comics. So going into this, obviously I knew there was going to be a lot of violence and it was a matter of thinking about the way that I saw fighting in comics previously and sort of trying to resist a lot of what might make violence depicted in this comic seem exploitative or sensationalist, but at the same time, uh, trying not to underplay uh, the sheer horror and brutality of, of the physical violence itself. All right, so as we were talking about in dinner, okay, um, I feel like, yeah, in like the last 15 years when we're talking about visual depictions of violence in media, I think the big watershed moment in the way it's shown is there is the scene that shall not be described from the beginning of the movie American History X, which if you've ever seen American History X, this uh, introductory scene uh, has, has left a scar on your soul. 
and I've only seen that movie one time. I thought it was a pretty good movie. I do not need to see it again because of this goddamn scene. And, and like, it's one of these things I don't even like to discuss it because I see it in my head. But the way that this uh, graphic violence was depicted in this one like split second of a scene, uh, like moving past the Hitler killing scene in Inglorious Bastards into the Walking Dead era, there's a kind of brutality and a kind of depiction of gore and extreme violence, which is like has become like a base level depiction of violence in basic cable. I watch Walking Dead every week. I watch both series now. I read the comic. I love it. It's extremely violent. Whatever. You know, like so that's the thing. It's like I, I grew up immersed in violence. I was a GI Joe kid. That's basically irrelevant to the point here, but. You know, like, entering March, especially March Book 2, you know, like, in March Book 1, people are getting punched in the stomach and kicked over, but, um, you know, like, there was the depiction of Emmett Till's corpse, which was the first moment I realized I was up against a great challenge, because I had to look at photo reference of his body to understand how to render it. And uh, Emmett Till, if you've read March Book 1 or are aware of the history, uh, you know, was essentially, you know, kidnapped... Uh, beaten, shot, set on fire, and then his body was attached to, uh, like, a, you know, like the whatever the center part of a tire is, and then sunk to the bottom of the Tallahassee River. So his body was bloated and deformed. I had to look at these police photos while I was trying to do, give an objective account of this. And uh, that's where I realized that I had to ride a line and somehow make it not look like in the Walking Dead era, like, oh, look at this horribly disfigured body, but and also not just show his casket. People need to know what happens when white supremacists in the 50s in Mississippi uh, do what they do. Um, and that was the first time drawing March where like, I drew that one panel and I was like, I'm done for today. I'm just done. So in March book two, uh, one of the most, I'd say maybe even the central facet of most of the book is how, like, if, okay, if you finish March Book One, I mean, really, I mean, they, they gain a victory. They desegregate, they get the city to agree to desegregate the lunch counters. Relatively speaking, a minor victory, and that's what we want to show. Like, these are gain, relatively minor gains by a dedicated group of people, but we open Book Two by showing that these minor gains are met with such disproportionate backlash and violence. Uh, I mean, like, Ten pages in, uh, like a Crystal Burger manager tries to murder John Lewis for sitting there, um, and so the Montgomery bus station massacre, which occurred on the Freedom Rides, uh, was really, I think, the the trial point for these depictions of violence. Uh, and we had we had to have discussions about how it was going to go down. And reading descriptions of it, you know, basically, Congressman Lewis has a mantra that's basically tell the whole story. Make it real, make it plain. By plain, we don't mean simple. To make it plain is to make it unconcealed, to lay it out for the world to see. And once I got in there, um, it's something that I basically didn't need to have anxiety about anymore because the violence establishes itself. I didn't have to worry about sensationalizing it because depicting the horror of a mom and dad encouraging like a toddler to claw out the eyes of an unconscious man is, is just so terrible. I'm like, that was another moment where I was like, 
And I was like, F this book. I, like, I can't take a today. break here. I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. But also, like, I think about a lot of this as a dad now, man. Like, who are these parents? But I think about that kid. Like, this kid is like 55 now. Like, who is he? You know, does he remember that day? You know, like, since kids are mostly, like, they are attracted to the positive reinforcement, like, does he remember his parents encouraging him? And he, his brain doesn't remember what he was actually doing. He remembers the egging on, you know? Or, like, he maybe he remembers it all. What does he think of or remember his parents or what brought him through this? You know, like, a lot of the brutality in the books is something that I no longer had to worry about. Like, am I being exploitative? I was like... It was like, all I have to do is show what happened in 1961, and it will tell its own story. It's, it's the story you had to tell. Well, this has been an extraordinary evening. This is an extraordinary book. Uh, we're really great. We could obviously talk about this forever. Thanks so much, Nate. Thanks to all of you for having me here. Um, thanks to all of you for coming out. And need more topics.